Welcome to Fostering Solutions, a podcast that uplifts people and enterprises making positive impact in communities around the world. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Foster. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Matthews. Um, Dr. Michelle is joining from North Carolina. Yes, North Carolina. And, um, you know, you'll hear all about her work. Thank you so much for making time for this conversation today. Okay. Tell the audience about yourself. Who are you? Who is Michelle Matthews? Well, let me see. Um, most people will define me, uh, many people will define me by what I do. But I like to think of myself as somebody who just loves to enjoy life. Um, I am first and foremost a daughter. Um, I am very proud to call myself uh, the daughter of my parents and have a great deal of respect for them. I am a sister, I am an aunt, I am a friend. Those are the things that I think I'm most proud of. And I am also, as a doctor, I see myself as a friend in the biblical sense of the word to the people that I serve. Um, Dr. Michelle Matthews is someone who enjoys the arts. I believe that science is as much as art as it is science. And um, so my hobbies include music and singing. Um, and you actually have a singing voice. I like to I like sing, sing, but I don't, I don't necessarily have a singing voice. <laughs> Yeah, so um, enjoy jazz, enjoy cooking. Um, and oftentimes I get from people, well, you don't act like a doctor. <laughs> and I, it makes me think of what is a doctor supposed to be like? But I think what people are trying to say is that I'm relatable. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and, that's, and that's very important in medicine. Yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, um, and we've got a couple of things in common because we, we were both uh, born in Guyana, South America. Just really proud of uh, my heritage. And uh, we're also members of the Lynx Incorporated. Yes, ma'am. So where we kind of believe in friendship and service. So that's you know, a couple of things that we have in common. So um, describe your career trajectory. It's like, what, what has your journey been like? Any obstacles you had to overcome? Oh, yes. So um, my career actually started off in physical therapy. Mm. I was not always a physician. Okay. So, you know, people say, did you always know you wanted to become a doctor? And my answer to that is absolutely not. I went into college not quite knowing or understanding where I would end up or what I wanted to do. But I think what I always knew is that I wanted to help. I wanted to serve people. And so it took me into physical therapy. And after about 10 years in the practice of physical therapy, um, I can't really tell you what happened, but something uh, urged me to explore medicine. And so I decided, okay, I'm gonna go for it. And so I. Uh, did my MCATs, applied to medical school, and I had the attitude of, 
I'm going to give this one shot. And if I get into medical school, I'm going to go for it. And if I don't get into medical school, I'm going to be the best physical therapist that I can be. And so that's how my career started. So I went into medicine. I'm a proud graduate of Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I say I grew up in medicine in Detroit. Um, I did my residency in Detroit, Michigan also. And I think of Detroit very fondly because I think it shaped me into the type of doctor I've become and my ideals and principles that I hold dear to in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, Wayne State was an inner city university. And so I had the privilege of caring for people who lived in the inner cities. And so very young in my career in medicine, I was exposed to marginalized populations and how to care for them. And so I took that with me as I moved on in my career. Um, from there, I went on to serve as faculty with a, a residency program in internal medicine and also faculty for the pediatric department, mm -hmm. um, which sort of gave me a different experience and how to um, how to give to people in order to help to elevate them to another level. Mm -hmm. um, and there I realized that I was really a teacher. And what I could do is translate information into bits and pieces that were understandable that people can grasp them. Mm -hmm. um, I moved on from there and worked with, I, that was the time that we were, there was a paradigm shift in medicine to hospitalists where you had the doctors in the hospital versus the doctors in the office setting. And so I moved to North Carolina to uh, start a hospitalist program here. And it was a culture shock for me coming here <laughs> <laughs> because it was much different than I had experienced living in Detroit and Washington, DC. And I had to really um, acclimatize to the culture of North Carolina while still trying to introduce a new concept of how medicine and medical care would be delivered to the people that I was caring for. So that was a big growing up for me. And then- So when you went to keep from Guyana, you went to Washington DC first? Is that right? Actually, I did not. I went to Illinois first. Illinois, okay. Mm -hmm. Yes. I went to Illinois, I went to high school there, and then I graduated from high school in Illinois and then came to Washington, D.C., where I went to Howard University. Okay, gotcha. Did my undergraduate degree there. Okay, good, good, good. Um, so you talked about how going to school in, at Wayne State prepared you for the for your current practice. Did being an immigrant impact your, your decision to go into, you know, medicine or, you know, equipped you in any way, just having that immigrant experience? I think it did. I think it's a integral part of my ability to adapt. Mm -hmm. um, being an immigrant, you're leaving everything that you know to come to something, to come to the unknown. And you have to have the fortitude to be able to adapt in mm -hmm. your new environment. 
I came here as a teenager to the United States as a teenager. And I don't think I had language for it at the time, but what I knew is that I had to be strong enough to know who I was so that I could embrace the change. Um, and I think that in terms of my journey in my profession in life and in leadership, what it has prepared me for is how to embrace change, how to adapt to change. Wow. And I think that's really grounded in that change that I had to make at such a young age as an immigrant. Absolutely. It's a major change, isn't it? Because I, I too came as a teenager when I, when I was 17 and we went to Brooklyn. So that was culture shock, culture shock, big culture shock. Um, you mentioned that your uh, Detroit experience prepared you for your current practice and you, you don't consider yourself a traditional physician. So what, what, made, what, what caused that shift from more um, traditional medicine to being concerned about access and health equity? Well, <laughs> I often say that in some instances, my career chose me mm. instead of me choosing it. I remember when I was in residency, I'm trained in pediatrics and internal medicine. And during residency, I had the experience of working with patients who had sickle cell disease, both mm. as children and as adults. And there was a part of me that um, felt a great degree of empathy because I could not possibly imagine the pain. There was another part of me that, and I, and I will just being transparent that said, I don't want to work with this population of patients because it's too difficult. Mm -hmm. Well, I came to North Carolina and sickle cell chose me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was working with a hospital system and they were struggling with uh, the common things of readmission, uh, length of stay, all those, those things that we talk about in medicine on our dashboard of success. And so the hospital president approached me and said, would you be willing to work with this population? And my first answer was no, not doing it. And I, my style of leadership is servant leadership. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that people started buzzing about me working with this population. And I thought to myself, I said, no, I don't know <laughs> what you all are talking about. <laughs> Well, let me just say that needless to say, I ended up with that population. And when I went to work with them, um, there were several opportunities to help them to have better access to care. Mm -hmm. I did not, I, I was certainly not a hematologist, so I had to learn. And I will say that the community of sickle cell providers all across this country rallied around me helped me to learn what I needed to and supported me in ways that I could not possibly imagine that uh. they would. Because what I found out is that these providers, there's actually a group that's called Sickle Cell Area Provider ne Network or SCAPA. Mm -hmm. These group of providers across the country, they were so committed to providing access to care for these patients that it would have been very difficult for me to walk away because 
I couldn't, I couldn't say I didn't have a tool because every tool that I needed was presented for me. And I realized that I went into medicine for service. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the greatest opportunities for service. And it brought back to me the lessons I had learned in Detroit about access to care. Mm -hmm. This is a population of patients that have been marginalized. They lack access. There's often disparity. Many of them are not understood. They lack the the tools for equity. Mm -hmm. And many times they don't have a voice. And so... I committed to being that voice and to committing to helping them. And it was an amazing ride doing that. Right. Talk some about health equity. What is it? What are some causes of health inequities? Share some about that. So there are many definitions of health equity, but the one that I like is a fair and just opportunity to get the best health that that is possible. Mm-hmm. And when we speak about a fair and just opportunity, it's not just about how well do you eat. It's not about whether you exercise. And it's certainly not about blaming someone for where they are in life. I say in when we speak about health equity, it's not what did you do, it's what happened to you. Mm-hmm. Because health equity is wrapped up in about just about every facet of life. It's about food deserts. It's about family, uh, the way families have cultures, how the culture is passed down in terms of cooking and eating. Mm -hmm. It's exposure. It's poverty. It's literacy. It is self-esteem. It's transportation. It's knowledge. It's expectation. It's all of those things that contribute to lack of access. And it's also how the medical profession has created testing. Why do, we, why do we interpret tests in a certain way for one population versus another? What's the impetus for that? I, I often think of uh, the kidney function. We have two different standards of looking at when someone is stage three in a non-white population or non-African-American population and the African-American population. And that's not really predicated on anything that's grounded in science. Interesting. Interesting. And what that does is that it prevents someone from having earlier access to care when the numbers are played out. So it's, it's wrapped into medicine very, very diff- deeply. And we have to... I say, take the elephant one bite at a time to try to dismantle the inequities that exist in healthcare. So what are, what are the causes of those inequities? It may be obvious, but how would you, what would you say are the causes of those well, health inequities? All the isms that you could think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, racism, the, the implicit bias An example would be the belief that people of African descent can tolerate more pain than other people. So their pain is managed in a different way. It's interpreted differently. 
in medicine, pain can be an indicator of something that's occurring very seriously. But if you, as a provider, look at that in a way that says you can tolerate more pain, you may be missing the cues that may be life-saving for someone. So that implicit bias runs deep. It's real. The schemas that we have, how we organize information that so that it accesses you know, in a way in which it makes sense to us, but it really may not be about what's going on with that other person. So um, I think genderism, ageism, mm -hmm. uh, sexism, you know, all of those isms are the things that um, lead to disparity. Yeah, have, do, have you seen, having lived in a, um, a more urban area, I know North Carolina is not necessarily rural, but it's uh, maybe less urban than, than Detroit. Is there a difference in health equity between urban and rural? I don't think there's a big difference in health equity. I think what is different is that the urban populations, if you go into the urban populations, you have more of a, a diversity. And just as you have a diversity in the population, you have a diversity in providers. Um, so people tend to be able to go into a medical institution and see people that look like them and may have an understanding. Mm -hmm. But I think we have to be careful also about using that as a mitigating factor for the inequity. We have to be intentional about being intentional because the fact of the matter is that all of us who are physicians and healthcare providers have been educated in the same institutions. So yeah. we run the likelihood of falling prey to the same schemas that would uh, portend the implicit bias that we apply in the emergency rooms and the hospitals. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very intentional and very careful about using that one thing as a mitigating factor and really understand that you have to be aware of your own biases so that you can overcome them. Right, yeah, because we all, people of all races have biases, right? Yes, absolutely. So what are some necessary steps towards a, a more equitable America? What can people listening do, you know, in, in their own circles to make a difference? So I think that fear is one of the greatest uh, proponents of inequity. Mm. When we have, we have an idea of what someone else's life is and we are afraid to even ask the question or engage with them, we continue to perpetuate those ideas and narratives and there's no opportunity for changing the narrative. You know, I tell people, and I do the same to my patients, sometimes they say, well, I didn't, you know, it's not my fault that I'm here. Well, no, it might not be your fault, but here's where we are right now. You've got something going on and we need to do something about it. So one of my favorite books is this book. It's called uh, Waking Up White and Finding, your, Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Mm -hmm. I love that book um, because it really speaks to the narratives that were perpetuated in the household of the, of the writer. And it's funny, the cues that we give to each other, the nonverbal cues or a statement might give. And so we grow up with these narratives and these untruths is what I call them, mm -hmm. 
And the other thing is not understanding history. And so we get to a point, and unless we are willing to sit in a place of humility and say, you know, maybe I don't know, and let me just talk to someone, and to not judge someone's experience. If someone is having an experience, that's their experience. Yeah. Accept it, not judge it. I think those are some of the big things of even overcoming um, the disparity and understanding and believing that there actually is disparity. We have providers who don't believe that there is anything such as healthcare dis uh, disparity. Really? Yeah, we do. There, there are some that do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. They're in a different zone somewhere. Um, let's kind of switch gears and talk about leadership. You are clearly a leader in your field, medicine, and um, you know improving health equity. Um, Leadership, we know, is about skills and attitudes and behaviors, all of which can be learned. You know, you've got your medical training, you develop those skills. What about attitudes and behaviors? What attitudes and behaviors did you have to learn or adopt to be a great leader? The first thing I think that a leader, and for me personally, is to sit in a place of humility. Mm -hmm. Leadership is about daily, for me, recognizing the opportunities that you may have to touch someone. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing that I had to learn is that just because I'm in a position of leadership does not mean that someone cannot do it better than I can. Mm -hmm. So for me, leadership is creating value within people and helping them to realize their potential. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things is that you can't be afraid to mentor someone even to a level greater than where you sit mm -hmm. because your only, your only role might be a stepping stone for them to get into position of their purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was that was something I had to learn along the way. Yeah, yes. You alluded to this earlier about your leadership style. What would you say is your leadership style? I think it's transformational. It's a transformational leadership style. Um, mm -hmm. Bringing in the principles of servant leadership, mm -hmm. understanding that people need to be satisfied and happy and fulfilled within their workplace in order to deliver the best that they have to give. I think oftentimes we think that someone can come to work and give their best because of their role rather than someone brings their whole person to work. <laughs> right. You know? right. And we take, we, we take what they bring and try to channel it and turn it into what can be, you know, the best iteration of themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think you can't do that without being willing to serve the people that you lead, mm -hmm. to be there for them, to get down into the trenches with them, to experience what they're experiencing, and to understand that they're in the best position to give you the information you need. And more importantly, that a leader cannot succeed if their team doesn't succeed. 
Absolutely. It's all about the team, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. Now we were like two years into COVID and um, we're all fatigued and just worn out. Um, as we continue to wrestle this pandemic, how has your practice been impacted by this? Wow. Um, it's, been, it's been significantly impacted because the people have been impacted. I would say that we are fortunate. We, I am, most of my patients are in the, uh, Medi the Medicare um, population. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're older. And if we look at the demographics of people who are vaccinated in the United States, the elderly population has been leading the charge on this. Um, they tend to, there's, their socialization tends to be such that they're staying at home. They're not really going out. So I'm really probably working with the safest population of patients mm -hmm. that there are. Um, but what has happened is that we've had to, you know, you, we've had to pivot a lot. You know, the practicality of just getting PPE, of people allowing us to come into their homes to care for them, of, um, you know, going into people's homes and making them feel safe that we're not going to be a vector coming into their homes has been somewhat difficult. You know, as with every um, organization, we struggle also with, um, employees who, you know, exercise their right to not get a vaccine and how, what that means for us. So um, there has been some challenge, but I would say that we have done very well. Um, our staff, most of the, I will say that all of my providers, actually, I haven't lost one because of COVID. And so I can honestly say we've done very well. They have, you know, they have you know, put their foot down, they have stuck there, and they have been amazing. Um, I've, I've had an amazing team in how they have responded to the needs of our patients during this time. And talk some about, because I don't think you really, you weren't really explicit in terms of the nature of your current position in medicine. Talk some about that, because you mentioned about visiting homes. Yes. It's a very unique model. Why don't you share some about that? Yes, so I operate in the, I'm the medical, market medical director for um, a company where we uh, partner with insurance companies to help to manage patients that are high risk, a very high risk, and that's risk of death, risk of um, readmission, high utilization, making sure that they're getting the right care in the right place at the right time. And so we don't take the place of their primary care physicians, but we do go into their homes to see them. And what we really look at um, is looking at those social determinants of health mm -hmm. that may create barriers for them being successful in their health. So an example would be um, someone is taking their medication and then they get to their donut hole and they don't know how to navigate getting help to continue their medication. So they drop off taking their high blood pressure medicine, and then if something isn't done, the next time you may see them is when they end up in the hospital with a stroke. Mm -hmm. So we are constantly in contact with them. We understand what's happening with them, and we start trying to find ways to help them to get through that period without losing their medications. Um, you go into homes where somebody brings a bottle and they've got 10 different medications in that bottle. 
Mm. And you have no idea how they're taking it. And they're taking them all and they're taking them incorrectly. And so that's a risk for them. So we might go through and do, you know, get pill pack for them so that they can take their medicines. And if the barrier is them understanding it, it's packaged in a way that it's safe for them. We have patients who don't go to their doctor's offices because they have literacy issues. Mm. And everything is written down. So they go to the doctor, they get an appointment card written with the appointment, and they go home, and it sits on the table because they can't read. So they have no idea when mm. their next appointment is. And so we build relationships so that they can trust us. And I will tell my nurse case manager, Mr. So-and-so has an appointment on such and such a day. And we call and remind him, you've got an appointment tomorrow. And so we, we collaborate with the physician's offices and say, when he has an appointment, please let us know. Because mm -hmm. we become the people who help him to understand when his next appointment is, what does he need to do, does he need to go get labs before, so that he can have that continuity between uh, his doctor's visits and he doesn't fall off the radar. Absolutely. So, yeah, very important role. Yes. Very important role. So as we wind down the conversation, um, as you reflect over your career, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started? Ah, <laughs> uh, that change is the constant. Mm -hmm. and that we should control what we can. Focus on controlling what you can. Mm -hmm. Because I think as a younger person, as a young buck, I thought I was going to move the world, fix everything. <laughs> and, you know, when it didn't quite happen, I felt that I was a failure. And now I think I understand that each day has 24 hours. There is a, there's a, principle of essentialism, mm -hmm. giving to giving your attention to what is essential and then giving time to the other things that you have time left over and just controlling what you can. Mm -hmm. And don't worry about the rest of it because no matter how much you worry about it, if you can't control it, you can't impact it. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. And um, the other thing um, that I think I've learned um, as I've grown in leadership and in my career is to not take myself so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to get to that point, right? Yes. It's like it's not that serious. Yes. It's not that serious. So as you look to the future in these crazy times in which you live, what gives you hope? Like what, what makes you continue to show up for your patients day after day. I was just hearing a very sad story of a, of a young physician who ended up just making herself sick. And um, I forgot the official name of the condition developing, like said, broken heart syndrome. Mm -hmm. She works in one of our, one of our more um, rural areas here in West Virginia. So what, uh, what gives you hope as you deal with uh, being a physician in these very trying times. What gives me hope is history and our youth. Those two things give me hope. Um, my, my every action is grounded and rooted in my faith. 
um, as a Christian. And he says there's nothing new under the sun. That's right. And if you go back in history, you'll see that the things that we're dealing with today is just another iteration of what we've already dealt with in history. Mm -hmm. And we were able to overcome that. So this do we'll be able to overcome. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that gives me hope is the young people. Our youth are phenomenal. You know, I think sometimes we don't give them enough credit. And I listen and I look at the young people around us who are, you know, standing up in activism, you know, you know, staying strong in their beliefs. And when we talk about that, you know, that's integrity. That's where they hold fast to their beliefs and they are not willing to compromise them mm -hmm. for the easy way out. I think those are the things that give me hope. And for me, hope is knowing that God prevails. Yes, he does. That, that is so true. Just having that faith that he will see us through. That is so true. So any parting words? Well, um, I would say my parting words would be for people to just hold on, hold fast. Um, don't. If you have a dream, go behind it. Um, execute on your ideas. Uh, believe in yourself. And if you step out in faith, I do believe the universe often supplies everything that you need to move forward in your trajectory. I've experienced it. I never thought that that would happen for me, but um, every day, it's a reminder that you're never alone walking through anything. And if you just continue to believe, continue to execute, and to do it from a place of humility yet confidence, then that in itself makes you a leader. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Dr. Michelle. Well, thank you, Dr. Michelle, for having me. <laughs> Too many Dr. Michelle's in this conversation. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so um, it has certainly been my pleasure. And um, I, I smile because not only are we links, but we're also sorors. Oh! That's right. All righty. <laughs>